The following program is a part of the Movie Morgue Network. I've already been dead for such a very, very long time. But I've come back to bring you news of the most gruesome twosome ever produced. Welcome. Bitter Bastard and Kelly Show. This is a spoiler podcast. And now, your hosts, Tim S. Turner and Kelly Hogaboo. Hello and welcome to the 23rd episode of The Bitter Bastard and Kelly. This time we're doing a deep dive in the latest M. Night Shyamalan thriller, Glass, dusting off our katanas for Ridley Scott's Black Rain, and donning our smoking jackets and silk jammies for Andrea Bianchi's Strip Nude for Your Killer. All that and more are coming your way. But first, join me in welcoming back to the microphone my co-host and the founder of the B-Movie BFF's website, Kelly Hogaboo. Good afternoon, Tim. Hey, uh, so (laughs) I I think we've got a really interesting mix of uh, stuff that we're going to talk about uh, this time. It's not all horror. It's not all action. It's kind of a mix of uh, different genres that we're going to be working with from different time periods. And um, I I, kind of like that. I kind of like that variety. Um, So before we get rolling on everything, so what have you been watching lately? I have watched a lot since we last talked. So most relevant, um, and I'm just going to go over things I liked because there's tons I will watch that I didn't like. Um, But I did enjoy um, Into the Spider-Verse, which I Mm -hmm. think is almost a perfect film. And I don't typically uh, resonate with animated films. I always sort of struggle with them, but it was excellent. And I loved Captain Marvel, which I saw a couple nights ago, which I know we're going to talk about um, in a future podcast. I also um, enjoyed Destroyer, which is a super, super gritty noir um, film from, I think, 2018. And um, it's one of those washed up cop movies, um, you know, just super nasty, kind of like Point Break, but but nastier. And I loved it. And I, I would love to talk about that one sometime because it was great. And then the last one I want to mention, which I know you're jealous is I did get to go see a packed theater screening of house on haunted Hill um, introduced by Vincent Price's daughter, Victoria Price. And I've seen house on haunted Hill many times and I love it more every time I see it, but I will say seeing it in a packed theater with people of all ages, you know, young to old, 
who were just cracking up and having the best time. It was an unparalleled, amazing experience at, at the Hollywood Theater in Portland, Oregon. So lots of fun. Remember the fun we had that time you poisoned me? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I love House on Haunted Hill. It's uh, it's one of my favorite William Castle films. And, yeah. Uh, definitely uh, up there for me with uh, Vincent Price. I mean, he you could tell he had a good time making it because he really cranks up the ham meter in that one. Yeah, I I was telling, I went with Ralph and my brother and sister-in-law, and I was like, you know, I liked him in everything I've ever seen him in. And, you know, a lot of films he was in, I, I don't think were that great. Um, but he's always great. He's like one of them, I mean, I like him in everything I've seen him in. And I was wondering, though, I mean, we so many people were laughing at in the theater about a lot of the sort of sexism, like, you know, the pilot Lance, is, you know, oh, yeah. the way he treats Nora and... And people were laughing at the corny, you know, effects. And I just wonder if I, I'll never know what it was like to watch it in 1959, 1960. And I just wonder if audiences took it seriously then, if it was spooky or if it was more like a fun film and if people were laughing, you know, back in 1960. I, I think it was more of a fun, you know, cause it was kind of a drive in, you know, thing for teens. Yeah. I think it was kind of aimed at that, that group and, uh-huh. Um, uh, you know, I think honestly, I remember the first time I saw it, there was one scene that I actually got, it got a jolt out of me and it's when the old lady comes out of nowhere. Although then they immediately undermine it by having her glide by like she's on roller skates. Yeah. That, that scene was scared the heck out of me the first time. It would scare anyone, right? She's in the dark. She stands, it turns around and there's this very scary, creepy, white eyed, demon with their arms out you know yeah that was that was a jump scare for sure and um but yeah it was it was cool and it was cool to see it on such a big screen and um just the enthusiasm in the audience was incredible yeah anytime i can see one of those old movies on the big screen i I jump at that opportunity because you really don't get many chances to experience something like that in a theater anymore. So, you know, we do, we have an old theater here in Hoquiam that shows older stuff, but I will tell you it seats about a thousand people. And um, there've been times I've been at, you know, an older movie, like we went and saw the bat a couple years ago. And I think there were, I think there were eight of us in the audience. Oh, wow. So uh, and that's fun, too, to have the theater by yourself. But to have it in a packed theater is pretty cool. And, um, you know, I I just live in a kind of rural-ish area, so we don't have those big crowds where I live. So going to the city is pretty fun. Yeah, I I, I think uh, House on Haunted Hill is one of those – older films it holds up really well you know yeah i mean a lot of the appeal now is camp but uh it, it's just it, it's just such a fun experience and uh there's so many great lines all, all the stuff between vincent price and uh carol omart is great yeah and um and and the uh, the young woman who's our our, uh, our ingenue heroine she's <clears throat> she's got an interesting voice and, like there's one part where she finds you know, like a severed head in her, her bedroom and she just comes in. She's like, would you like to see one of those heads? Right. <laughs> <laughs> would you like to see one right now? Yeah. Okay. I guess yeah, I sure. do. And he's got the, all the little coffins with guns in them. 
Um, yes, the guns are funny because people are like they do in old movies. They hold the gun and they gesture with the gun, and I'm just like, yeah, like they're throwing the bullets. Yeah, or they're just talking and gesture. They they did that in Plan Nine from Outer Space, where he, he oh, has God. the gun. He like pushes up his hat with the b- barrel of the gun. I'm like, yeah, I just have a head. different relationship with guns. I don't feel like I wave them around. You know? <laughs> and then there's yeah. um, Pritchard. He's so annoying in in that. Um, oh, you know, yeah. everyone loves Watson Pritchard. <laughs> it really is one of one of uh, Alicia Cook's um, whinier performances. Yeah, my brother leaned, He's like, "Where do I know him from?" I said, "Oh, from um, Maltese Falcon." And he goes, "Oh, yeah, that's right." And I said, "Yeah." So, but yeah, character actor not not often uh, called in to play a romantic lead. I would guess. Uh, no, uh, he was really good though. Um, in uh, th- this one uh, old entry in the the Falcon series with Tom Conway uh, called the Falcon in San Francisco, where he plays a uh, a homicidal disc jockey who's suffering from uh, post traumatic syndrome, oh. which was kind of a weird thing, you know that they that it was not weird, but I mean it was something that didn't really come up in cinema a lot then. Uh, you didn't really start hearing about right. a lot of that until like Vietnam, right? You know, uh, <clears throat> he's actually really good in. Uh, menacing but also sympathetic in that which is cool. kind of odd for a little you know like a b movie but um so the, i guess the big thing that i watched uh was a uh, happy death day to you uh the sequel to happy death day and but it, it, it's an a difficult film to assess because um did it entertain me yes was it what i wanted no Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Did you see the original? I did not. I've seen the trailer for both. And I was wondering, is the second one significantly different than the first? Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, so like with the first one, it's a slasher movie. Uh, and the, the, the heroine in it, she keeps getting killed over and over again. Every, every time she gets murdered, she wakes up and much like groundhog day, she has to live her same, the same day over again. And so she uses that time to try and solve her own murder and figure out how to get out of this uh, time loop. And with the sequel, there's still a, 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 a slasher killer, but it becomes almost incidental to the plot. And it, it ends up becoming more like a wacky sci-fi comedy a la back to the future. And it's extremely entertaining and, and uh, very smart and well done. But a lot of horror fans are really pissed, you know, because yeah. Yeah. I can see where, where it's gone lighter and it's less uh, nasty. It's not a horror film as much. Yeah. I yeah. I felt like the first they showed too much in the trailer uh, because I only I you know I avoid trailers at all costs but I was in the yeah. theater uh, so I didn't leave <laughs> or anything and the trailer just showed you so much of um, the sort of juicy bits of the film and so I that's probably why I haven't watched it although I've heard that it's clever and people love it and she seems just appealing from the. You know, she seems like yeah. a great heroine from what I can see. Well, in the first one, she starts out, she's an awful person. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, isn't that how it goes? They have to have a character arc, right? Yeah, she's got a character arc. <laughs> By the end of it, you know, she's finally, she's a good person. She's learned to be, you know, kind to other people. And, and she's developed a relationship, you know, with someone. And uh, 
and she's pretty much still in that same groove in the second one because it literally picks up from the end of the first one. Gotcha. And I, so I've I, I, I've been on a lot of horror boards, and a lot of people are just like infuriated that it's not a slasher anymore, really, right. even though it. It, it is part of the plot and yes, there is a killer and yes, that killer is unmasked at the end, but it is not, it really is probably one of the most, uh, unhorror horror films I've seen. Huh. Uh, it's honestly, if I was to classify it, I would put it in a comedy section because gotcha. even the gore in it is really not, it's almost non-existent, even though she gets stabbed a bunch of times or whatever, they always cut away when it happens. So, yeah. you know, you know, so it's hard for me to recommend. I mean, I would basically say it was really entertaining and I really enjoyed it, but don't go into it expecting a horror film because gotcha. it's not. Um, <clears throat> uh, also, uh, I started rewatching um, Twin Peaks, The Return. Um, I have the Blu-ray set and I'm rewatching it. I, I'm, I'm reminded that, God, there's really, there's so little cr really creative television anymore. Even though I do think we're kind of living in a golden age, a uh, renaissance of television. Most of, it, of the good stuff's on cable. Um, but there's, there's very few filmmakers that are as original and innovative as David Lynch. Uh, whether you like his stuff or you don't, uh, you can't say that he doesn't have a singular vision that's his own. And the show looks expensive and uh, one of, one of his uh, assets that he's always been really good at is sound design. Uh, he's really good at, at coming up with just really creepy and disturbing and odd uh, soundtracks yeah. to his films. And when you watch it, it's basically like what he said, which is it's 18 parts. It's 18 episodes, but it's like an 18 episode movie. Okay. That was broken into 18 parts <laughs> and it, it, it is fantastic. It is mind blowing. And the, it, it's everything that David Lynch does. Well, it's, it's intriguing. It's frustrating. It's beautiful. It's ugly. It's, it's just strange. And I absolutely love it. And I, re I recommend it to anybody. I mean, unless you're one of those people who just desperately needs linear storytelling and that's it. Uh, you know, cause he, that's not him. Gotcha. <laughs> but, um, I, I watched the film and the first, um, season and mm -hmm. I could not get through the second. I just got bored. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. I did love what I saw, especially the first season. Um, so I haven't been in a hurry to, uh, I don't even know if you, I think you would probably have to watch all the second uh, season to, um, to jump into the return, but uh, yes. haven't, haven't been in a hurry to do that. Well, what I would tell, tell you is like, you know, the whole story behind the second season is uh, David Lynch was getting bored with doing a series and he was also working on, um, Oh, what was the, uh, uh, God, I'm embarrassed. Uh, the, the one he did with Nicholas Cage. Wild at Heart? Wild at Heart. Yeah. And uh, so he, while he was away, there was a bunch of other people that desperately tried to keep the show afloat who didn't have his level of, uh, you know, brilliance. And so <clears throat> once they 
solved the murder of Laura Palmer, uh, which David Lynch did do. He, he wrote and directed that episode, which was brilliant. And, and frankly, the most terrifying piece of television I've ever seen. Um, he, uh, the show basically treaded water for like 10 episodes after that. Cause they couldn't figure out, <laughs> well, what's the thrust of the show going to be? Right. Cause now that we've solved the murder, we've got to figure out something to do to, you know, a new mystery and whatever. And it really wasn't until uh, almost the last five or six episodes that they really figured it out. And by that point, Lynch came back and, but it was too late ratings wise to save the show. Um, <clears throat> and so really you, you kind of need to watch up until they, they capture the murderer of Laura Palmer and then skip like about 10 episodes and then jump back in for the last five, because that's, that's right. what sets up the third season right. and okay. to a lesser extent, the movie, because the movie goes back and forth in time. Right. Um, fire walk with me. <clears throat> And um, so anyway, yeah, so I recommend that. And by the way, you're never going to see a cast like this because mm-hmm. uh, whether there, there's so many different actors where they bring back almost everybody from yeah. the show, but then they also have cameos and some larger roles by everybody from Jim Belushi to Michael Sarah to um, Jennifer Jason Lee um, and David Duchovny. And I mean, it's just, all over the place and it's just wonderful. I am. Um, I'm in a couple of like twin peaks ship posting groups on Facebook. So <laughs> I have seen the third season. I have seen it memed to death and without the context of having seen it, which is pretty funny. So I have like a very disjointed concept of what happens in the third season. Yeah, it, it's definitely, uh, it, it it's just not like anything you're going to see anywhere else. And, and, cool. and it's, and it's better for it. Um, and uh, the other stuff I've been watching, I've watched, uh, I've been watching some movies um, on Amazon prime and, and shutter uh, one. Um, uh, Let's scare Jessica to death, mm-hmm. which I love that movie really um, offbeat. Uh, it's not uh, fast paced at all. It's not a, uh, um, a slam bang vampire movie. It's very much a mood piece and a character study of a woman who's um, been released from a mental institution and her and her boyfriend and a friend, they go and they move into this country house in this small town. And it seems like everybody in town is very odd and they all have band-aids on different parts of their bodies, like their arms or their throat or whatever. And, um, <clears throat> turns out there, you know, like there's a vampire there and, um, the town are all like her slaves or whatever, like, or are they, or right. is it all in her head? Right. And have you seen it? No, I, I know it by reputation. It's kind of funny cause it's one of those not critically acclaimed, but it seems like every horror fan I know has seen it and loves it. So no, I have not seen it. Oh, see now I, I think you would really enjoy it. It's it's uh it's really well done. It has a great performance by Zora Lampert uh, in in the main role of Jessica. Um, it's definitely one that I would put in the um, more um, poetic and atmospheric area of horror than you know slasher you know or violent blood letting whatever. Um, and so I it gets it gets a, a big thumbs up from me. Um, 
and uh, I've been watching um, my DVD of <clears throat> uh, the original series of The Flash from uh, 91. Mm. Okay. And uh, I, I love that show. I, I was really into it uh, when it came out. It's it's not great. I mean, it, it definitely could have been better. Uh, you know, I mean, the effects have come a long way since then. But uh, I really enjoyed it. And it uh, the best episodes are the ones with Mark Harmon or Mark Hamill rather uh, as the the trickster, because <laughs> uh, he is just you know bonkers. Okay, wait. There. Is this a, a live a action his- film or is this a cartoon? It's a live action okay. and it, it's a lot like his, like he's kind of channeling his, his Joker. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now for being a, guys. for being a comic book guy, you don't seem to watch a lot of the cartoon versions. I no, I notice. Um, no, not as, you know, not as much. I, I, honestly, for me, it, it gets to a point where there's only so much I can watch. And um, <clears throat> for me to watch some, uh, uh, one of the, you know, there have been so many animated. Batman ones, and some of them yeah. are supposed to be pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I, the one I did like was that he was on was the uh, the original. Uh, I say original the the, <laughs> the Batman one that they did in the um, the nineties, early two thousands, which I, I thought was really great. Um, <clears throat> and I, I did like the uh, the Justice League Unlimited series that they uh-huh. did as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's about it. I think that's about all I've been watching. I uh, wanted to drop um, briefly a mention of uh, Kubo and uh, is it Kubo or Kobu? I cannot remember. Kubo and the Two Strings, um, yes. which is also an animated um, CGI slash stop motion, which was, um, it's funny. It's like the third film because we were talking a bit before the show. It was one of those slow start films. Like it was a slow start for me, but it became a really beautiful um really beautiful, really, uh, it was really odd because it's Japanese, but they had a bunch of white actors acting in it, which I think is a little off-putting, but really Mm -hmm. great story, really great performances, amazing animation, just like you could watch it for the animation alone. And then another animated one that I enjoyed was the Lego movie too, which also had a slow start for me because I couldn't figure out if they were kind of rehashing the first Lego movie Mm-hmm. Um, which I really liked. I loved the first Lego movie and I loved the Lego Batman movie Yeah, and Lego movie too. Um, and again, this is Aberdeen, Washington, right? So we went on the first night it was open and we were the only ones in the theater. <laughs> so, we, oh, yeah. But, um, which was fun because then I can just text and do whatever I want. Cause I'm not bothering anyone. But, um, uh, Lego movie two was, took some risks with the story and I thought it was pretty great and it was pretty fun. And there were some, surprise uh, performers in it that I had no idea were going to be in it. So it's funny. Cause like, I, I don't, I have such a hard time with animated films, but I mean, I've just mentioned three of them that I've watched. And part of that's having kids. Um, you know, you, you have some animated movies in your life if you have children, but right. um, you know, typically uh, I can't, it's like, I just can't relate as much. Um, you know, even, even these animated films that are coming out that people say are just amazing, you know, like, is it Coco? I can't remember the name of it. Everybody was saying it was yeah. fantastic. And I'm just like, Oh, like, I just feel like I can't connect with, with uh, cartoons as well. I didn't grow up with cartoons. So um, it's just not my jam. Oh, you but missed out. I will say some of these 
films have they're 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 made for children but they're in my mind they're a little intense like did you did you watch uh kubo uh i never did get around to it no okay well it's too much of a spoiler for me to say it but i will say that i'm watching this i'm like this is intense for a kid this is sort of a 13 and up type of thing a seven-year-old watching this um and it wasn't the, there's some violence in it, but it was more the emotional trauma. <laughs> just like, I just, I don't know. Like, it feels like when I was a kid, the movies were a little softer. Like the worst thing that happened was Bambi's mom getting shot, which, which was pretty rough. Yeah. Right? But they, the films now I'm like, or like into the spider verse. I had people saying, Oh, is that a kid film? Like, no, like there's just some traumatic, violent death in it of loved ones. <laughs> so no. Like well, that seems to be an ongoing Disney theme. <laughs> oh, especially for moms mom and or dad. Yeah, dad. They're they're bringing the dads into it now, and but um, yeah. If you ever do watch uh, Kubo's, just a beautiful animation experience, and just the amount of work that goes into that um, is kind of incomprehensible to me. So, uh, but they were they were fun. So. And I watched some absolute turds too. I mean, I watched uh, what, Gri- I watched Grizzly. Um, oh yes, again. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. I've watched it more than once. <clears throat> and I did enjoy Slumber Party Massacre quite a bit. I think you didn't you watch that with us uh, over a rabbit room. Were you uh, with one? us for that one? Slumber Party Massacre. Oh God, yes. At the end of February, we watched that one. Yeah, that was pretty fun actually. I I would watch that one again. I I love Slumber Party Massacre. It's it it's just so gleefully offensive. I, well, I feel it's such a weird film because it was written as a parody and then it was um, the producer was like, OK, but we're shooting it like a straight, a straight slasher. And so it had this <clears throat> weird um, juxtaposition in it. And uh, I, I definitely loved it. I wish I had a I wish there was a better print of it because it was, you know, it didn't have great uh, image quality or at least the one that we rented online didn't. Yeah, the Blu-ray looks great. Oh, does it? Oh, yeah, it, 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 it's really a thing with the, the the Slumber Party Massacre trilogy of films. They're all really bizarre in their combination of humor and uh, and, and gore. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it feels like it's trying to be serious, and other times it feels like it's just trying to be just absolutely goofy. And it's an awkward combination, yes, but somehow it it's still entertaining. Yeah. Well, I, I, again, you know, everyone talks or not everyone, the, the small group of horror geeks that we are a part of talk about, you know, it's the only horror trilogy that's all directed by women. Yes. Um, all three of them are, but different women, but uh, you know, you've still got the producers calling the shots. And so that's why you'll, it, it feels like it wasn't um, really allowed to be a, a woman helmed project. But of course, we're, we are just going to be seeing more women uh, running the show with horror and and slashers and all that. And I'm I'm excited for that because I, I was watching slashers before, so certainly I'm going to love watching it when when we give women the you know the helm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's uh, move on to our main stuff. Uh, if there's one thing secret government agencies love, it's evil conspiracies. And for Dr. Ellie Staple, convincing three powerful beings that they're not superheroes is like an all-you-can-eat buffet. When David Dunn, a.k.a. the Overseer, is captured after saving a group of cheerleaders from Kevin Wendell Crumb, a.k.a. the Horde, 
They're both put in a maximum, sort of, facility, <laughs> along with David's arch enemy, Elijah Price, a.k.a. Mr. Glass. After lots of feel-good ther- group therapy sessions, David even starts to doubt himself. Thankfully, Mr. Glass has other plans as he teams up with the Horde to escape and commit more delightful deviltry. Can David stop them in time? And will Dr. Staple ever act like she didn't just drink a gallon of Robitussin? Maybe, maybe not, but hopefully she'll cut down her consumption to just a glass. (laughs) Belief in oneself is contagious. We are part of something larger. We are fighting for the broken. My name is Dr. Ellie Staple, and I'm a psychiatrist. I specialize in those individuals who believe they are supernatural beings. I don't belong here. David Dunn, you believe you are exceptionally strong, but there are men who are as strong as you. Kevin Wendell Crump, you believe there are two dozen souls living in that body with you. You can call me Norma. I'm so You have an extraordinary IQ. You think you are superhuman. What if I suggested that you are mistaken? They've been lying to us all. You were sent here to be an avenging angel. How much do you want to avenge us? These individuals have lost their perspective. A lot of people are going to get hurt. (laughs) Don't do this. Yeah, yeah, I did that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I know you went into Glass having not seen uh, Unbreakable or Split before, correct? Oh, no. I saw Unbreakable when it came out. So that had okay. been a minute, you know, 19 years or whatever. And I did watch Split to prepare myself for Glass. So I was mm. all caught up by the time I watched Glass. Okay. What about you? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I, I know, I think we, uh, I think we differ on our opinion of split. I really, I really liked it. I, I thought that James McAvoy was amazing in it. Um, <laughs> and I really liked Anya Taylor joy as well, mm-hmm. who reprises her role in this. Um, mm-hmm. and of course they pulled, you know, the whole rug out from under you at the end of split where it's like, Ooh, it's connected to unbreakable. Because look, there's David Dunn, you know, Bruce Willis. So when you watched Split, did you not know that they were connected? Because um, by the no. time I saw Split, I, you know, that it had that reputation already. Right. It had already been spoiled for you. Right. Yeah, because when oh, it came out. No, Split spoiled itself. The ending did not spoil it. it just, no, I did not like it at all. Yeah, so, I, I remember hearing you say that. Yeah, it was, it was rough to, to trudge through it. 
Um, so I, I remember. Well, I do have to say, I remember when I saw the ending and they had they brought in the David Dunn character, and, and there's like, ooh, their their universes are connected. I I kind of was like, really? <laughs> so what, what what did you think of Blast? Well, I, you know, again, like I was I was so disappointed in Split. I was I was almost um, I was really off put by how exploitive it was and how poorly um, written the teenage girls were in it. I was quite a shock. I mean, I watch a lot of old garbage and, and I know it's sexist going in, but split was pretty rough. And as far as James McAvoy, I love him. I mean, I love him. And I was looking forward to what he was going to do in split. And um, it, you know, uh, Shyamalan has a great ability to put a camera on a person and let the tension you know, unfold like that's at this point, his one skill in my, I, I just, I have been so frustrated with his films. Like I probably won't watch any more unless, unless you assign them to me for the show, which is fine. Um, I just, I don't know what happened with that director, but I feel like his films are getting worse. And um, I really, you know, I liked signs and unbreakable was pretty solid. Although now that I've not enjoyed split and glass, I'm like, wow, maybe if I rewatched Unbreakable, I wouldn't like it as much. But I remember liking it quite a bit. So in Glass, uh, I feel like if you showed me the poster and asked me what I thought happened in the film, I would write up the plot and it would be exactly what happened. It was There were no surprises to it whatsoever. And it was really boring to me. Um, for most of the film. So it was a, these were a real slog for me to get through. And I have to say the scenes where McAvoy is losing it, you know, or not losing it where he's converting to the beast and he starts growling. And I'm sure those are impressive scenes to some people, but to me, it reminded me of mystery men when Ben uh, Stiller was Mr. Angry. (laughs) And he was just going, (laughs) I was like, so once, once you're laughing about that, you're not, you're not very taking the film very seriously. So these were just, these were just a huge miss for me. Um, As much as, we had a great cast, but it just, it was not, it couldn't be pulled off for me. <clears throat> well, you know, okay. Shyamalan for me has been an, a very frustrating director because he's got, you have to admit like all of his movies are gorgeous to look at. I mean, Absolutely. The, the cinematography is always just so polished and beautiful and uh, uh, he knows how to light something or to frame a shot uh, to where, you know, suspense is built, but it always seems like he falls when it comes to, uh, it's like he can, he can write a beginning and a middle, but he just can't pull off the landing. And I love the sixth sense and I thought signs was good. And uh, I, I, you know, I enjoyed Unbreakable, <clears throat> um, but like the things like Lady in the Water. Um, oh, what was the, oh the Village infuriated the village, yeah. me. Uh, yeah, I, it was pretty pretty artsy fartsy and um, had a couple spooky moments. Uh, but yeah, it's like you can't tie the project together. Yeah, um, I, I remember seeing the trailer for the Village. And thinking, ooh, that looks cool. And, but I remember at the same time, too, I said to my friend, I remember looking over at him and saying, I swear to God, if it ends up there in modern times, 
and they're just being kept there and, and kept in the dark about I'm gonna punch somebody. Uh, yeah. And yep. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Are you shitting me? <laughs> I I to me, like he reminds me of Tarantino in that I really do think there's a lot of talent and hard work. And I think that the first projects of his I was exposed to, I was extremely impressed. And as he keeps making films, I'm getting less impressed. And that like, like we've both used the same word. That's frustrating um, because yes, he filmed Shyamalan films beautifully, but you know what? A lot of directors can do that these days. You know, that yeah. we see some really beautiful, beautiful films Um I mean, even the 1989 Black Rain that we're about to talk about is filmed mm-hmm. beautifully. Like, so, yeah. so to me, you know, and, and uh, he certainly, he gave, I mean, it was really weird because in Glass, I feel like Bruce Willis and Samuel Jackson are kind of underutilized, but James McAvoy is over the top. Uh, oh, yeah. So it felt like he was the director's favorite by the time we got to the end of, of Glass. And um, I just... Uh, I also feel like neither Glass nor Split were very sensitive to mental health. It doesn't seem like a well-researched um, concept of sort of mental health care. And and I had to laugh at your synopsis about the the secure men- or the secure facility that they're in because obviously this is a spoiler podcast, but it's revealed that the peop- there's a huge group of secret society people who are keeping these superheroes locked up trying to convince them that they're not superheroes so that they don't have to kill them because they don't want them to be out in the world. Right. Right. It's a great premise, right? Great premise. So they've got like two people guarding these superheroes. Yeah. Right? There's like, like one guy sitting there eating his lunch. Exactly. Not yeah, looking at the monitors. Right. <laughs> and the big, the big gotcha moment at the end is that Elijah with his super brain, he orchestrated this whole thing and he filmed it and he released it to the internet. And now everybody's going to know there are superheroes. And that's presented as some big own. But you and I know that if we really have that secret society out there, they could discredit all of those videos as being faked. I mean, I don't know. I just was like, it, wah, wah. <laughs> it didn't work for me. Yeah. I. Well, first of all, I think like right out of the gate, I knew that um, Sarah Paulson was evil. <laughs> right. There was just something about like the way, the nuanced way that she spoke, and you know who who in the hell spends their uh, uses their um, medical degree to convince people that they're not superheroes. That's her. That is right. what she states is her her right. thing. <laughs> right. Which is just silly. But um, I have to say, I was actually shocked at the end that they killed off Bruce Willis. That's that. Well, that did shock me. I was like, "Oh shit, I, they're drowning him!" You know. And it was so easy. That I I felt like I could have done it. They're like, "Oh, I'm gonna hold your head under the water." I thought he was super strong. Well, but <laughs> they, remember yeah. they say that water is his weakness. That's yeah, why they put him yeah. in that whole big tub of water. Um, I guess that weakened that softened him up. It's like loosening the jar uh, before you open it. So sure. yeah, he was he was easy easy to drown like a like a kitten. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I just felt like they didn't use his, um, which by the way, he's looking great for his age. I mean, I should say for his age. He looks great. Um, But they didn't utilize his character much. He has one incident of vigilanteism that we see, right? And then he thwarts the beast, right? They have the little fight in the warehouse. Right. 
And then he's just locked up being talked at. And then there's a, and I have to laugh at the showdown because they imply the showdown is going to be at this big plaza skyscraper. Right. And then they don't have it there. They have it in this parking lot. And I know they did that for the story's sake, but for me, it felt like a budget thing, which I'm sure it wasn't, but it was like, they're like, oh, we can't really afford that. So we're just going to film it in the parking lot. Well, honestly, I actually, I actually think it was for the budget. I think that oh, you did like, well. because like, you know, I mean, how much more expensive would it have been to have had this big battle, you know, in, at the top of a skyscraper with explosions going off and, and everything. I mean, you know, it's like the Avengers level. <laughs> Right, budget. Which I was, I was so bored. I was like, "Great, at least we're gonna get to watch him climb a skyscraper." But nope. I was like, "Oh no, he's he's gonna push this van a little bit." Yeah. <laughs> like, all right. no, I just um, also, I mean, okay, the Beast, right? Yeah. If you say his name, he comes out. Kevin shows up. The Beast goes away. So why weren't people doing that pretty much a hundred percent of the time that they were in the same room with him? You know, because you had to say his name, Kevin Wendell Crumb, and eventually he'll deflate and become like Bill juice. Yes. And it's like, no, everyone's just sitting there watching him tear the shit out of something. And I'd, I'd just be saying Kevin Wendell crumb. So I don't know. It just, please don't make me watch an M night Shyamalan movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say, uh, it was really kind of weird that they took, uh, Casey, uh, that she, you know, Anya Taylor joy, who was in the, in split, uh, and made her all of a sudden now she's super sympathetic to him. That was kind of gross because like he's literally murdered so many girls. And I do understand that it's not really him. I, I actually do believe right. that it's separate people in there. Um, but yes, she was the, it had such a simplistic premise, you know, that Kevin, the abuse from Kevin's mom created the monster. Right. And then compassion from another woman can, make the monster go away. It was, it was, you know, I had secondary embarrassment like, with that plot <laughs> premise, but um, yeah. Cause we kind of had Elijah's mom, um, David's son and uh, Casey as the sort of, uh, and Hey, I have to ask you. Um, I felt like they were, they, they kept talking about comic books and mm-hmm. like, this is what happened. And I'm like, <clears throat> I found that, to be weirdly insulting towards comic books because comic <laughs> books are a pretty complex body of literature. Well, it's almost like they were talking about seventies comics, not modern comics. Gotcha. You right. know what I mean? Cause a, a lot of, if you look at like Marvel and DC stuff um, from the seventies, a lot of what they were saying was very true. Mm-hmm. Uh, stuff now is much more nuanced and uh, yeah, it just complex. feels like it, there was the, the, the premise of both, I'm kind of treating glass and split as one with this criticism, but the premise of both films was excellent, was great. The uh, research and the sort of underpinnings of the story were really poor. And then there wasn't, um, there. I feel like there's a lot of pretentiousness in his films and that hasn't seemed to go away. Yeah. So, you know. But I did like the premise, especially Split. Split had a great premise, and um, but the the actual execution of it, and particularly the way they treated the the young women in the film, really was a miss for me. And um, the premise of Glass was again, we're mostly just watching guys being locked up and talked at, and that's not very exciting for me. <laughs> so, 
I gotcha. <laughs> so uh, what, what do you give this movie? I don't know. I guess a five because I didn't care for it. But it, um, like you say, he, beautiful, um, beautiful cinematography and setting. And I also want, we haven't talked about the music, but I do think he's, he's got a good um, use of the score. I think he does really well with that. So yeah, I'll agree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah, you know, I, <clears throat> I think I give it a six um, because I think some of the performances in it are, while not realistic, they're at least entertaining in an over the top way. Well, it's like, it's like um, Sam Jackson and, and McAvoy are overplaying and, and Willis is underplaying. Um, and I don't know if that's intentional or not, but uh, I'm not sure Bruce Willis is much of an actor actually, but well, I still wanted to see, I wanted to see more from him in this film. I, I think, I think Bruce Willis is, is capable of, of really good performances, whether it's Die Hard or Pulp Fiction. Um, I, I, I do think sometimes he has a tendency to uh, do what I call paycheck roles where he just like gets paid and he doesn't really put a lot of enthusiasm into it. He just shows up. <laughs> and uh, I, I and this might be one of them, uh, but yeah, it, it, I think it's kind of an interesting idea. But overall, I think it's a it's a disappointment. Well, we like you mentioned, we get we have um, another Jordan Peele horror film yes. to look forward to, and I think that will probably scratch the itch for uh, you know, cause he's got that cinematic the gorgeousness and he's got the creep factor and the Hitchcockian, you know, he, he's kind of, I think, I think the type of horror that split was going for, I think you and I both like that type of horror, yes. that psychological horror. Um, so, you know, I, I think split was a better film than glass, but I just didn't care for either. All righty. Well, now it's time to unlock the door to that abandoned video store down the block so we can rummage through the bargain bin for our retro rewind. If there's one thing Michael Douglas does well, it's play unscrupulous dirtbags with a sly charm. Here he's Detective Nick Conklin, a dirty cop who has to escort Yakuza henchman Sato back to Japan. Once there, the lovable Conklin manages to insult pretty much everyone he comes in contact with, spreading his ugly American cheer from Tokyo to Osaka. When Nick's ultra-dreamy partner Charlie meets a gruesome end at the hands of Sato, he teams up with Japanese detective Matsumoto to bring the Yakuza down. The only thing that can stop them now is the slippery road conditions created by all that black rain. (laughs) A New York City cop (laughs) on the trail of a killer. From the back alleys of Manhattan. Well, our victims are certainly Yakuza. To the streets of Japan. Because of your negligence, a man we've wanted for a long time has been lost. Now, come on, we'll take some of the heat for this, but we're not taking the rap. Rap? You see, there's a war going on here between Sato and an old-time boss named Sugai. And they don't take prisoners. So where's your boss? This isn't New York. We have rules here. I've seen Sato's work, okay? He ain't following your program. You are foreigners. Nothing more than interested observers. No one's gonna help a Kaijin. Kaijin. 
doctor, a barbarian, a foreigner, me and you. More you. Charge war, God gave Japanese. Now, this is good. This ain't money. You got a counterfeiting war going on, guys. You are civilians here. It is illegal for you to carry a gun. <laughs> Something tells me we should cut our losses and let the locals handle it around here. I can't go back without him, Charlie. So, Black Rain. Um, obviously, my favorite of the films that we're discussing today. So. <laughs> yeah, so I saw this when it first came out, and I would have been 12. Oh, um, Jesus, and now I feel yes, old. I know. Well, uh, yeah, I feel old, too. But um, then I must have seen it in between, you know, being 12 and then yesterday when I rewatched it, because I, I know I'd seen it again. Um, so I rewatched it a lot yesterday and I, I was telling poor Ralph, he was, he was installing a motor on my industrial sewing machine and he was cornered to where I could talk to him about black. (laughs) (laughs) And I was, you know, you know how it is. Like if we like a film, we pick it apart, you know, even more. Yeah. And so I was picking the film apart, but I said, listen, man, I said for eighties action cop action films, this is a really good one. I said, it's way better than Cobra. Oh, like, how dare you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Cobra, Cobra's great for, you know, different reasons. But um, no, I I liked this film, which means I get to pick it apart tons. But um, <laughs> what about you? Did you did you see it You know, when it came out? Or I mean, what was your exposure? Well, let me tell you, uh, this came out when I was working at the theater. Oh. So it played at our theater. So I got to, uh, you know, we always would. You know, you stand in the back for the last five minutes or whatever with your <clears throat> your dustpan and your your garbage can, so you can you know pick up garbage as soon as everyone leaves. And so I had to hear "I'll Be Holding On" by Greg Allman over and uh. over <laughs> and over. One of the most obnoxiously machismo laden songs ever. It it, it just it, it, listening to that song, it just it, it smells like like whiskey and cigarettes and uh, you know, leather jackets and motorcycles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hilarious, especially when they use it at the end. Right. Uh, well, I feel like that I, boy, I have so many strong opinions about that, um, but I feel like both the beginning scene with the song and him on the motorcycle yeah. and then going and, and drag racing and that macho song at the end, yes. we're trying to bookend and sort of beef up the film. Right. Because um, Douglas's character certainly has machismo, but it's not the Sylvester Stallone. No. Pop- it's different. It's actually, I felt like a more realistic 
and toxic type of ma- like uh, that's one reason I like the film was because his it's not overt it's not overt um, kind of gross like entitled behavior but it's very common and I have to say I had remembered him as being more likable right then when I watched it this time I was like oh he's an ass like just a total dick um, oh yeah right out of the gate. That said, there's some cool surprises. Like he seems to, at the beginning of the film, he has a, uh, he seems to have a relationship with his kids. Like he picks them up, takes them to school and he seems to have a positive relationship with his ex, Yeah, which again, that's, that's not standard for the, right. The ex is always this pain in the ass in these kind of films. Sure. And, and I did like that he goes through a character arc. I actually enjoyed that. Um, the scene where he talks to, uh, is it, um, I'm so bad with Japanese names. Is it Matsumoto? Matsumoto. Is, yes. When they are talking in the noodle shop about two thirds of the way through the film and they have a brief exchange and, um, Michael Douglas admits that it wasn't just his buddies who stole. He also stole and Matsumoto gives him this little, you know, not a lecture, but like four sentences. And I, I, I thought that was great. I thought that was really well done. And um, I was surprised that they, cause think about it. Marion Cobretti does not have a character arc. <laughs> right? So I, I appreciated that about the film. Yeah. Uh, I personally, I, I think that uh, Ken Takakura who plays uh, Matsumoto, I think he's the secret weapon of the film. Yeah. He, he's the Vendino. <laughs> yeah, he is fantastic in that film you know in, in what is you know really kind of a meat-headed uh you know macho action film he takes a role that could just be a throwaway part and really uh, imbues it with a lot of pathos and he doesn't have a lot of lines but he has a face that conveys so much and um like you know initially it's the oh you know, I, I have nothing but, you know, disappointment for you because you're a shitty American cop, you know. Um, and then, of course, their relationship builds once Charlie is, is murdered. Yeah. And at the end, <clears throat> when uh, he's, you know, Nick says goodbye, get on the plane, and he gives him the the box with, the you know, a dress shirt in it as a gift – and then he sees underneath that he he didn't steal the plates. He gave them back uh, that they're in the box. And the look on his face he 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 underplays that so well. Mm-hmm. The way he the way he looks at the plates and he kind of turns and he looks at him with this smile that is kind of like half surprise and, and and half like he's proud of him. And then you know and he kind of you know hits his head with the box. And I, it just, I love that scene. I love the way he played that yeah. scene. And then of course they immediately undermine it by cutting to Russ, uh, Michael <laughs> Douglas, giving the thumbs up. Right. As Greg <laughs> Holman, you know, I don't know how it is. Yeah. You know, it's like, Oh well, dear God. <laughs> and, like I, I'm trying not to get too deep on this film, but I mean, that's probably why I liked Matsumoto and Nick's, because I do like a movie with two men who establish a intimate loving bond. Yeah. And this was well done in, like you said, kind of a meathead film. Um, uh, 
the whole role of Matsumoto is a bit tricky because the way the Japanese men and women are portrayed in this is pretty, it's pretty off-putting. You know, they're, I, you know, his role is sort of that, um, you know, magical native helping out the white man role. So the role itself I felt is a bit of a throwback, although of course we're still seeing those kind of roles, but I agree that he played it well. I mean, he's a, I think he had like 200 and some films to his, you know, he's a well-known Japanese actor. Oh, yeah. I, I've only seen him in a couple of things, mm-hmm. but um, he, uh, he was definitely the moral center of the film. You know, Michael Douglas has the, if I, if I can get away with it, I'm going to do it and, and F you for, for questioning me. That's his right. whole attitude. I, and there's so many times where Michael Douglas does something crummy and, um, you know, that puts other people's lives and careers at risk. Yeah. And then later we'll say, you need to talk to your partner first, buddy, before you go to the suits. I don't know what he had against suits, but he talks about suits, the suits, yeah. Those are, you know, uh, bureaucrats wearing suits. Okay. He doesn't like them, but um, you know, he was, he was a real crumb bum in this film, but he does undergo a transformation and that's kind of, uh, most, um, you know, it's rendered when he doesn't choose to kill Sato and, and, you know, he doesn't do the vigilante cowboy thing. He brings Sato back, uh, to the Japanese yes. authorities, which was, you know, great. Um, and let's talk about Andy Garcia because, uh, oh. again, I saw this as a kid, right? Yes. And so while I'm watching it, I'm not really grasping the whole internal um, affairs, you know, that Michael Douglas is in trouble for stealing and that he did steal. I wasn't grasping that. That wasn't something I was catching on. Now I'm a little older and I catch that plot line. I also was not seeing that um, Charlie was going to get killed. So when that scene, Oh no, I I thought he was dead meat from day one from minute one. Well, again, I was a kid, so I'm watching it. So I will say that scene is the one of course that I remember. And I think if you'll find people my age who watch this (laughs) too young, like I did, um, that's the scene they remember because this, they're walking. I, I couldn't. So was this in Tokyo? Where, where was this taking place? Uh, I believe it's in Osaka. Osaka? Yeah. yeah. It's Osaka. That's right. So they're in Osaka and they keep finding these parts in this, the city that are um, empty. Oh, it's, it's constantly I, empty. Yes. Yeah. So, but, but still beautifully shot, right? Yeah. Beautiful. So they're walking and they start getting, this one motorcyclist who's kind of not quite taunting them, but kind of on the, it's that scene from the point the motorcyclist shows up to the, that whole scene is like almost like a horror scene. It's more like a horror scene than an action scene. Yeah. And of course it culminates in, um, you know, Andy Garcia getting beheaded by Sato or not. Was it Sato? That yeah, Sato yeah. does it. On the bike. Yeah. Great aim, by the way. Great aim with your sword. Yeah. But um, that scene was great. It, it Today, if I saw that movie today, I would I'd go, oh, he's dead meat. He's too cute. He's too, he's too sweet. He's going to get killed. But when I saw it at the time, that was a shocking, upsetting, and effective scene. Yeah. I, I think that, I think you're right about that. That one is probably the best scene in the film as far as action goes. Uh, or suspense, uh, the way they the way they do it because initially it's kind of like ah this, this guy's you know on the motorcycle is being kind of a dick, and then you all of a sudden you start realizing oh shit this is this is not going in a good direction. Right. Um, I, I I think for me when I first saw it I, I knew Andy Garcia was dead 
me because <laughs> he was the lovable partner, you know, mm-hmm. who's always trying to keep things light. And, right. you know, plus you had to have a way for Nick to end up with Matsumoto as a team. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so his, his death facilitates that. Um, and I, I, you know, Michael Douglas in this movie, his, his cop is always, you know, at rage level 11, yes. 90% of the film. And I really kind of almost wish that he had been the one called in to investigate, uh, at uh, sleepaway camp. Yeah, he was. <laughs> I had that same thought. Cause he's, he's so irritable at all times. He's oh, always, yeah. and he's, and I love how the American guys have all these funny idioms, usually about balls or ass. Oh, right? sure. You get my balls. And the Japanese guys are like, what? I don't understand. I'm like, listen, bitch, I'm sure J- Japanese people have idioms. They understand he- that they're hearing an idiom and they probably know what balls are. But yeah. they always are having to explain these like these gritty American idioms to these like uptight, innocent Japanese men, which is irritating but yeah he's constantly irritated and constantly yelling i mean he was he was it was hard to watch him but then you know i feel like the (laughs) when charlie gets killed you know he starts to have these sort of humbling moments and then i did like the scene towards the end right before the showdown where he goes to the other gangster um can't remember his name Sugai. uh, sugai and he tells sugai listen I, he says, I'm the solution to your problems. Like I can kill this like guy cause I don't have much to lose and you can pretend you didn't know about it. And, you know, he finds a way to, um, to get what he wants and to, he kind of, he kind of knows his place at that point. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm definitely, um, reading too much into black rain, but I did really like the character arc that he went through. And I, Kate Capshaw is great in this um you always have to ask yourself is it worse if they just don't have women in the film or if they put women in the film and they're super demeaning but she is not demeaned in the film she's got a great character she's got great dresses that's another thing i remembered from Uh when i watched it like that's what i remember is how great she looked she's got a cute like very very secondary um part in this and uh, we also saw a couple like Louise Guzman and Stephen Root. You know, there were a couple right. of surprises that I didn't remember that they were in the, they're not in the film very much. But. John Spencer. Yeah. And apparently um, Yusaku Matsudo, the guy that plays Sato, the, the, the intense, crazy eyed yeah. sword. Wield, apparently he died right after the film was made. Oh shit. So this was his last role. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. I didn't know that until I read the, yeah, you know, some research on the film, but he he's he's kind of a embarrassingly Japanese stereotypical villain, but um, you know, he's pretty threatening, right? Yeah, he, he, he's very effective. Um, he doesn't have a lot of lines, but you can tell that he that he's just batshit crazy. Yeah, he's violent and and scary and um, unpredictable, and but. Uh, I, I actually, again, I mean, when you're talking about an 80s cop action film, there were a, a lot of them and not a lot of them were great. I mean, I, I watched them because that's my crack. But um, this is this is one I would say was pretty good. So I think before we <clears throat> close out talking about Black Rain, I think we really have to address the the, the, the horrible racist dialogue 
uh, not just and not just from Michael Douglas. I mean, Andy Garcia's <laughs> got some some lines. I didn't. There too. I was watching for that, and I didn't. I didn't remember hearing Andy Garcia use a slur. He called everyone "you little shit," but I didn't remember him. But yes, there were some slurs. The first one was 18 minutes in because I was watching it and I was like, is this going to be, you know, but yeah, it was, it was more the way they treated the culture than actual slurs. It's incredibly disrespectful because it's like, oh, they're foreign and different. So therefore they're lame or, you know. Or like the scene where they're, um, Michael Douglas, who somehow has better, he has got a better ability to analyze a counterfeit bill than the Japanese police department would right. have. So he steals the bill there and he doesn't know what a chopstick is called. They, I'm like, okay, he's a New York, he's a New York, like 40 year old man. Yeah. I think he would know what chopsticks are. I don't know. <laughs> well, like right out of the gate of meeting Ma- uh, Matsumoto, he, he, he calls him a nip, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just, Oh God, you know, yeah. It, it, or the scene in the bar that's supposed to be adorable, but it literally has five Japanese women who do nothing but giggle. Yes. They don't talk. They don't have names. They don't have any. They're just, hey, hey, hey. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, what do you give it a, a one to ten? I, I don't want to say because your your listeners are going to think less of me, but I give it a nine because <laughs> I loved it. Um, I, give it, I give it a seven. Uh, I, I literally just finished watching it right before we uh, started recording. So that's why it's so fresh <laughs> in my mind. Um, the Greg Allman put you, it knocked it down a few points. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's, it reminded me, like I said, when I was working at the theater and yeah. the, I remember <clears throat> we would make fun of it because there were like, you know, like weekday showings when there'd be no one in there. And, <laughs> and, and we'd be sitting there and we'd be using our, our brooms to lip sync Greg Allman. <laughs> it's just so overly macho it really was was. and it wasn't it just wasn't quite in keeping with the tone to have that yeah it's very odd but uh yeah so you know all in all i it's entertaining but it it definitely is kind of like a a time capsule uh because you're not going to find a lot of movies like this anymore um it, it's uh it was one of like ridley scott's movies in between his bigger blockbusters right even though this did make 134 million which is a, which was a pretty hefty profit um <clears throat> and it you know everything in it looks like a uh, like a slick car commercial it's all you know wet streets with neon you know and uh, yeah, setting sun and and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I I think it, it's it's fun hokum for what it is. Yeah, and um, I was gonna say shoot. Well, I give at least one of those uh, nine points just for Andy Garcia's hair, which yes. was just uh, lit up the screen at every moment. Just great. <laughs> yeah, I um, I just feel like for. I, I watched a lot of these films somehow when I was around that age. And um, this was one that just stood out as being better than, because there's a lot of much worse. I mean, come on, we've, we've done samurai cop on the show. I think so. <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah, I think I know what I was thinking. You, you'd said they don't make these, you know, but did you watch the outsider with Jared Leto? Uh, no, I did not. 
because it's a it's not a, exactly the same, but it, it's dealing with the Yakuza and he's a white guy over there. And it felt like it was it went backwards as far as like, you know, treating the Japanese culture respectfully. And so, you know, it's kind of depressing that we're still uh, we still have these problems in these films. Yeah. But um, yeah, Black Green. And I, I, I love both Ridley and Tony Scott's action films. I think I just like the way that they film them. And um, so we'll have to do Top Gun at some point. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh there's so <laughs> much is subtext not a good to discuss. Film. Yeah. Well, there's one subtext. There's one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we'll be right back after these commercial messages with the delightful family film, Strip Nude for Your Killer. Yay. <laughs> oh, God. Good evening. It's intermission time. During the next 10 minutes, we invite you to visit our refreshment stand located in the center of the drive-in. Hi, folks. I'm Rico. Oh, no, Joe. He's Peppy. See? You can find us at the concession stand in the lobby. Along with all sorts of other tasty goodies. See? Rico's Nachos, a refreshingly new and different snack discovery. Chock full of high-quality ingredients, crisp, fresh tortilla chips, covered with creamy-aged cheddar cheese, topped off with zesty jalapeno pepper rings. Rico's Nachos, out of sight. Remember, folks, we're the new star at the snack bar. Rico's Nachos, a new taste treat you can't beat. See? Rico's Nachos, on sale at the snack bar now. ice-cold Coca-Cola with a bright, ripe taste and a special sparkle all its own. Enjoy a Coke at our snack stand right now. Want to learn more about horror directors? With a lighthearted look at three of their movies, meet fearless podcaster Gore Blimey. I've been unsettled by bats in the past and startled by parrots, and I've even been known to jump at the odd cockatoo. Discover horror films that are classics and others, too. There's a topless aerobics massacre, an exploding rock singer, cannibals, nude martial arts, a deep fried prostitute. But it's not all silliness. You'll get proper movie breakdowns, opinion, and background information too. Yep, in the 80s and 90s, Jeff Stryker was huge in gay porn. In every sense. So if you're a horror film fan, come and check out the Trilogy of Terror podcast at strangeanddeadly.com or find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on your podcatcher one of those people that has a certain charisma and a certain style and i'm just hoping one day he'll rub off on me the trilogy of terror podcast where we try three times harder to give you the willies okay (laughs) and we're back thanks gore uh if you get the chance do check out our good friend gore blimey's podcast trilogy of terror on itunes and other podcatchers uh his show's pretty damn great and he's a delight to listen to Finally, let's throw slow things down to a sexy groove. Turn down the lights, put on your sexiest lingerie, open a box of your finest rosé, 
and slip into that hot tub because it's about to get hot in here. When hunky photographer Carlo assists, I mean, covers up a botched abortion, people start dying in steamy, sexy ways. There's a killer in black spandex on the loose, but hey, it's cool. With all those funky fashions, oh-so-romantic saxophone music, and the spunky elfin Magda to help keep things in that indescribable zone of love, you'll forget all about the severed penises and knives up the hoo-ha and strip nude for your killer. Thank <laughs> you. 
Uh, okay. Jesus Christ, this movie. Okay. <laughs> okay. Go I know ahead. you liked it because when you, whichever film you put on last for us to talk about is always your favorite. <laughs> so don't even pretend. <laughs> okay. So what, what do you think of this movie? Um, well, it was trash for sure. Uh, I... I think I've told you, I watched like two beautiful, critically acclaimed, amazing, heartfelt films, like right before and after. So it was like, I said, it was like eating a sandwich on a delicious sourdough bread with an ossified cat turd in the middle, because <laughs> this was the middle film. It was trash. I had to carefully hide it from, because not only is my family, they are decent people that have values and, and <laughs> taste. But I also had a 15 year old visiting for the for the week, um, oh, so I was like, "Yeah, I had to keep pausing it." And but um, I mean, actually, I just think of it as just, and it's I've seen about five or six Jallos, so it's definitely just in solidly in that Jallo camp. Um, I we talked about this before, but it took me about 40 percent of the movie to realize that the male lead was actually a lead. I thought he was just another. <laughs> gumball that was going to get murdered right. um, and i was dismayed to realize that he was the lead yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I the first time i saw this i was absolutely slack jaw that this was our hero uh, yeah i mean le- okay let's start out the the literally the first shot of the film is a shot between a woman's legs with a doctor's head in there doing an abortion yeah literally in the, the first shot incredibly low lighting i'm like listen buddy <sighs> Like, you know, spend a little cash and put a light bulb yeah. in that room. Cause that has not, you know. Yeah. So. so, okay. So the doctor screws up the abortion and she dies. She mm-hmm. has like a heart failure or something. And so he immediately calls who we later, later find out to be Carlo to come and help dispose of the body by making it look like a suicide and putting her in a bathtub or something. And and from then on it's we we go to this fashion fashion house with models and stuff and the killer who's dressed in black spandex and and a motorcycle helmet is going around killing people killing you know male female it doesn't really matter and you you're you're really kind of like okay clearly is this is someone trying to get revenge on the death of this woman right otherwise i mean what's the point of having that scene um, and right out of the gate, <clears throat> we meet Carlo and the first scene with him in it is he sees, uh, this, this, uh, model Lucia, uh, played by Femi Benussi and she's walking around this tiny little bikini and he starts, you know, coming up to her with, with his camera. He follows her and he's taking pictures, you know, Oh baby, you can be a great model, baby. You can be a great model. Oh yeah. Look, look, look at me here. And you know, and she's just kind of like blase, like, yeah, whatever, go away. And he finally convinces her that he could get her a modeling gig. And he takes her into a, a, a sauna and then starts like taking her clothes off. And she's not concerned that he's taking right. her clothes off. She's concerned that someone could walk in. Right. And then he goes and like takes off his 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 swim trucks. By the way, the most horrifying tiny little. No, we need to bring back European style men's swimwear. Oh, I'm 100. I would never like wear that. that. I, want, I want to see those banana swimmers. <laughs> yeah, <spin. laughs> 
And he goes, it's like takes off his, and he like gets on top of her. And she's like, Hey, you're really out of your gourd. You know, not like, Oh, you're raping me. (laughs) I mean, it's like, what in the Holy hell is going on? And he's like, she's like, Oh, I'm not hearing any clicking. He's like, Oh gosh, I, I guess the camera's not working. Uh Oh, you know? And then he like just mounts her and she's into it. And you're like, what? (laughs) And then his girlfriend shows up and opens the door and she's like, come on, man, I'm waiting for you. And he's like, I'm busy. And she's like, all right, fine. And leaves. Yeah. He's like, he's like, bitch, get out of here. I'm busy. Right. I'm like, oh, that's just to give us another suspect for the possible murderer. Got it. Right. (laughs) So So then later, you know, we meet Magda who's played by um, my, my dream woman at at Fennec, who I just, I God, I love her. And she comes on him too. She drops her clothes and she's, oh, she's not fully nude. I mean, she's got underwear on, but, uh, and he's all, you know, Oh, well, I, I don't think you could become a model. They, their, their time frames about five years or something. And, you know, and I think you're more talented behind the camera and, uh, and, and, you know, and then she of course goes down on him and, and he's just like, got this look on his face. Like, yeah, two chicks in the same day after no condoms or anything. Is it the same, is it the same day? I can, I, the timeline was a bit muddy here. Uh, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. He's disgusting. And yet he's written as being uh, attractive, you know, so all the women are well, they all want themselves him. at him. And I, so one thing you haven't mentioned is did I did some research. Do you know the name of the instrument that they use when the killer springs out of nowhere to stab someone? Oh, you mean the bear? Yes, you know what that's called? It's called a flexitone. And so for your listeners who do not watch this film, it's trash. (laughs) This is the terrifying, this is the terrifying noise we hear when the killer springs out of nowhere to stab someone. Yep. (laughs) Which that's it. Which is a it's a sound I associate with cartoons. Yes. And so it's like like what the like I'm, this, there are scenes that were like a, a poor sex farce, like the sauna scene, yeah, where you're like, uh, yeah. And then there were these pretty nasty murders because the killer cuts off the genitals of the doctor, which I couldn't understand. That's what I was seeing. Right, it, too dark. Attack, you hear this like slicing sound, and you see this pile of something, and I'm like, oh, that's supposed to be the Franken beans, right? Yeah. So the killer. <laughs> Mostly stabs people in the stomach and then cuts off male genitals and occasionally cuts off a woman's breast and leaves that stuff <gasps> around. But don't worry, that is not important at all. That is just another wretched <laughs> bit of shock that the film is trying yes. to offer. And um, yeah, we have several, you know, rape or sexual harassment in the in the kindest way of looking at it. But let's get to the scene that I that Tim so kindly screen capped me as if it wasn't already burned into my brain. <laughs> ah, yes. So the the modeling agency is run by a woman who is, of course, a secret sinister lesbian. Oh, right? absolutely. She's predatory. It's all get out. And, yeah, and she's married to this. Um, I can't remember his name, but he is um, also a rapist, and he Maurizio kidnaps. What's it? Maurizio. Maurizio, thank you. Maurizio kidnaps one of the models, takes him to takes her to his villa, and tries to rape her. Slaps her. She finally consents, uh, and then he can't sexually perform. Right. So she's very nice to him about that and leaves. 
um, and doesn't go to the police, but which is too bad. So then he gets out this <laughs> this blow up doll yeah. and starts frying. He's in his underwear, his in the whities. biggest pair of t- tidy whities. They're large and not tight. Um, and he enormous. goes and gets this. Yes, and he and he's crying to this blow up doll about how he, she's the only one he can make love to. And I'm like, well, first of all, does this movie hate the human race? <laughs> Secondly, if if that is your girlfriend, you need to keep her fully inflated in like a nice room. Like, you know what I mean? She was stuffed in some kind of... So that scene, I'm like, thanks, Tim. Like, I know that you were specifically wanting to torture me with that scene. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the, the voice on the guy makes it even worse. Because like, there's scenes where <clears throat> he's with the blonde, the one blonde, uh, Doris, that's the one that he takes back to his place. And he's sitting there and he's eating like nuts or something or candy and, and his voice is like well you really <laughs> right. nice to me <laughs> right <laughs> it's just like, yeah Ew. <laughs> yeah it was pretty insulting because he, he's also the only like fat person in the film yep. so they're clearly saying you know because he's fat he's repulsive right yeah it, it, it was um i mean fortunately he's killed really soon after this blow up doll scene but but oh my gosh like it um i love this some reviewer uh in an italian magazine said it was one of the more daring giallo films yes. and i'm like is it daring i mean i can make up trash and put it on screen i don't feel like that's daring i feel like that's you know a desperate bid for well some kind of uh if you uh if i don't know if you've ever read you probably haven't uh because you're not a big giallo fan like i am but uh there's these two volumes, uh, this, uh, books, these books by, uh, Troy Howarth, uh, called, uh, so deadly, so perverse. And it covers every single Jalo from the beginning of the, to the end of the trend. I have not read that now. And he talks about how the, uh, one of the, the writer on it, uh, co-writer, a Massimo Filosati, uh, he wanted his name taken off of it. And the director, uh, Bianchi's uh, name, put on it because everything that was like super crude and gross was his idea and right, he was embarrassed right, right. by it. So he was trying to like voice all the blame onto that guy. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, I think, well, first of all, no one in this film, uh, when they, when they, they, they always hear a noise, right. And they're alone and nine times out of 10, they're naked and they yes. never make an attempt to put on any clothes. No. Uh, at all. Like, Femi Benusi in particular walks around full frontal for like yeah. 10 minutes. Yes, she does. Uh, she walks around. Heels. And this is after after everyone knows. Yeah, in heels, that's right. After everyone knows that there's a killer and that it's sort of targeting this model agency yes. and she's by herself. And nobody goes to a phone ever and calls for no. help, even though they'd have adequate time to do so. So, yes, yeah, she walks around for quite some time. Like I feel like I got up and made myself a sandwich and did some stuff and sat down and she was still creeping around, you know, and eventually uh, gets stabbed. And and of uh, course the camera is sure to have like a full long shot during all of these scenes. (laughs) And uh, so let's, let's get back to Carlo because um, again, like I said, this guy is your nominal hero. Now, not only does he uh, twice strangle Magda, yeah. One time, like he's being funny, and the other time he's actually genuinely pissed at her. Yeah. And you're like, wow, dude! And she immediately forgives him. And um, he 
he's like at one point she almost gets murdered and he finds her and he's trying to help her, you know, out of the house. So she, cause she's being framed for the murders and she's like, I love you. And he's like, don't say stupid shit like that. We've got things to worry about. Yeah. You know, I'm like, what? Thanks Dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah this is, I, I think I texted you. I'm like, it's, it's pretty interesting. The women are treated worse when they're not being murdered in this film. Cause just the way that, that, the, you know, they're being spoken to and treated is abysmal. Like yeah. every single second that they're on screen. Um, and yes, he's, he's terrible. He's oh, abusive he's, and rude and shitty. And he's always telling her to make him food or get him coffee. Yes. And, um, yeah. He's, he's pretty gross. Uh, it's funny. I don't remember what he looks like at all. So I think my brain just was like erased Carlo out of my <laughs> Out of my brain kind case. of those like healing things your brain does after trauma yeah yeah uh <laughs> well <clears throat> so at the end the killer is unmasked and it's revealed to be patrizia one of the models and it turns out she's the sister of the woman that was uh, that died during the abortion Sister and lover. Yes, of course, lesbians are always creepy and sinister in these films, right? And two things. Number one, when they revealed who it was, I was like, who? (laughs) Who the hell is that? Right. Because she's so, she's in it so little. Yes, she is. Plus, she looks very similar to another character. Yeah, who's who's been been killed. killed. And so I actually had to rewind at one point and go, wait. What, who, what, what did she, what'd she do? And right. plus I get the feeling that when they made this film, that they came up with the killer at the end, I pulled it out of their ass because when, um, <clears throat> the, the one dude, uh, gets murdered and, uh, I, I, you know, his, his penis gets cut off and stuffed up his own butt or whatever uh, <laughs> in a really delightful scene uh, as they, they i don't in, remember that <laughs> you you feel terrible for this actor because they have a whole scene like when the cops come in and he's literally pants down face down over this couch with blood all over his butt <laughs> and a knife sticking out <laughs> Re- reconsidering his career choices at exactly. that point, I'm sure. And of course, they you know they had to make him uh, that he was gay because they can make right. some you know kind of snotty off the cuff comment about his sexuality or whatever. Um, <clears throat> well, when he when his body is discovered, it's Patrizia that finds him, and right. her reaction when you watch that scene is one of genuine surprise. Right. So if she had murdered him, what's she doing there? Uh, Why did she look surprised? And why did she faint when there's nobody around to do an act for? Because Uh, like if there were other real sick, if there were witnesses, you know, she could, it could have been like, okay, like very much like a Columbo plot where it's like, Oh, I didn't know. And I'm setting this up to establish a timeline, you know, but no, and so when it makes her revelation as the killer really bizarre, right. it makes no sense. Slipshot. Well, they've killed so many people off by the time we get the killer unmasked. They, there's only a couple possibilities, well, yeah. really. You know, it's like, oh, it could be a cop. could be that girlfriend we saw for one minute who peeked in on the sauna. Right. You know, there's just not that many people. Right. Left. There's not that many suspects because the body count in this is super high. 
Yeah. And I have to say, I was promised by the poster and by the tagline that the killer would demand that his victim or her victim strip nude. And the killer never said shit, Tim. And you know why? Because at the end, they're like, oh, yeah, the killer was a lady, which they're always doing, which is ridiculous. But um, I'm like, no, no, they never demanded. No one said that. It was more like you wandered around naked in your kitchen for an hour and now I'm going to stab you. But I guess that doesn't read well on a poster. <laughs> well, okay. <clears throat> if there's one thing you find after watching a lot of Jallos as I have, and I, I think I own about 75 Jallos. Um, yeah. If there's one thing you find, it's that you're a sad man and you need a different hobby. Yeah. <laughs> well, the killers are always either women or Catholic priests. Okay. I did not know that about the Catholic there priest are, part. There's ex- you know, there's obviously exceptions in there, but <clears throat> there are so many instances of it being Catholic priests or people disguised as a priest. Okay. Uh, and it has a lot to do with uh, Catholicism in Italy in the 1970s. And, sure. Uh, there was a lot of disaffection with the Catholic Church and uh, you know that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's a lot of what happens is they, they always do it. They build it up like it's got to be a male killer. And it turns out to be a right. female one. So it's more, it's like, Ooh, tricky. You know, we trick you. Right. Um, <clears throat> I, I have to say, you kind of know, if you've ever seen any of Andrea Bianchi's other films, you kind of know what you're in for with this uh, because he directed the, uh, the wonderfully trashy uh, burial ground nights of terror, which uh, is one of the best mm-hmm. slash worst zombie movies ever. Uh, the one with the uh, the woman who breastfeeds her ten year old son who's a zombie and bites her nipple off, and also the 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 uh, fantastically sophisticated Malabimba, the malicious whore, a film that I'm sure no, is fun for the whole family. Uh, his uh, his name's familiar to me, but I'm I just I'm looking him up, and I don't think I've seen any of this of this. So, yeah, his, hmm. he's definitely uh on the exploitation side of Italian cinema. He's uh not you're not going to get uh a Schindler's list out of this guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well I mean, yeah. Yeah, so um yeah, I don't, I, <laughs> I I think you uh I asked you for I'm like okay listen I'll I'll watch Margiela tell me which ones to watch and you sent me a list and I actually put it in my notes and I don't believe this particular director made the no. cut so mm-hmm. I I did not put that on the list I I gave you a list of ones that I thought were actually well done and not just uh you know festering garbage like this uh, shit pile right so, <laughs> right so so what, 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 what do you give strip nude for your killer? I don't know, man. I mean, it, to me, it was, do you remember, was it Slaughter Hotel yes. or like Klaus Kinski? Um, yes. Yeah. It was, it was really only like one point above that. And I don't remember. So I, I want to say like three. <laughs> okay. okay. <clears throat> uh, much like how you were saying with um, uh, Black Rain, how the audience is going to lose respect. Uh, for you, <laughs> I, I, I think you're going to lose respect for me. <laughs> I give this an eight because I, it's, it, it just, it, it's so, uh, it knows what it is. It is unfettered trash and it, it is 
upfront about it and makes no bones about it from beginning to end. It is literally a film that ends with an anal rape gag. Yeah. And it freezes uh, frame like it's an episode of Barney Miller with everyone like, ah, you know, <laughs> and I, it just, yeah. every time I watch that scene and it freezes the frame, I can't stop laughing because it's in such horrible taste. It, it, it's like you, you cannot believe the balls on this guy that he thought that this was a good idea. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty unappealing. And anytime I have to literally hide what I'm watching from my family, it's a little signal that um, I'm I'm rotting my brain <laughs> with with uh, what I'm watching. Although, from what I've heard, but, uh, some of the stuff you watch, it like it's not just the stuff I make you watch. Oh, no, I watch trash for sure. Uh, and, and, you know, that's the thing is like, I think we've talked about this before. Sometimes a trashy film is so much fun. And the the despicable parts or the repulsive parts are just they just don't bother you as much or you can look past them. And then sometimes it's like you got to turn it off. Do you know what I mean? And I just feel like there's no way to know. And so that's why I'll, I'll pretty much start anything up and give it a shot, you know, so. <laughs> Yeah, and as far as your eight rating, there is no judgment in this podcast, right? Like you're you're amongst friends, you're in a safe space. You can be honest here. Like, so. uh, well, you'll you'll be delighted to know that next month's selections are are uh, much more mainstream and tame. Yeah, well, you know, all right. Uh, I I wrote them down. Do you do you uh, reveal them here on the show, or do you wait? Okay, yeah. well, go on then. So. So that's it uh, for this month. Uh, next time, we'll be infuriating incels everywhere with our review of Captain Marvel, seeing double in Jordan Peele's Us, polishing off our plastic body armor in The Vindicator, and scarfing down our box of candy with Valentine. As always, if you'd like to get a hold of us and tell us how we're doing, you can write to us at moviemorgue1 at att.net and interact with us on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. So until next time, remember with great power comes great responsibility. So long, folks. Good night. <laughs>